right? Yes. Don't really need this. Wow, that was sweet, wasn't it? All right, so we are in Isaiah 9. You said, nah, we're supposed to be in 2 Timothy. I decided to do this instead. Remember, we left off last week with Remember Jesus? So we're going to remember Jesus today. Uh, and look at this amazing passage in Isaiah 9. What is our greatest need as humans? The short answer? A revelation of God and fullness of joy in Him. Knowing God and enjoying Him forever. That's our need. We need to know Him. We need to enjoy Him. We need to delight in Him. The good news is this light and joy has come into the world. There is light and great joy in Jesus Christ now and forevermore. In fact, there is even more light and joy coming in the future. Today, we get an Old Testament glimpse of the person and work of Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man. This glimpse was given to offer hope to a people in great darkness. We too live on a cursed planet, right? We see it everywhere we look. There is darkness, sin, pain, wickedness, evil, everywhere we look. So these passage and this passage applies great for all of us. It applied for those before, 700 years before Jesus showed up, and it applies for us today, 2,000 roughly years after Jesus has left. Today we get a glimpse of the light and the joy found in the Son of God who was given. Our passage breaks down into three truths to remember while living on this cursed planet. First, there is light radiates in darkness. Light radiates in darkness. And second... Joy resounds through victory. That will be found in verses 3 to 5. And then we'll see why are light and joy revealed in the dark world. In the last section, righteousness reigns in King Jesus in verses 6 to 7. We need to understand a little bit of background for this uh, book, Isaiah, and get an understanding of it so that we can then walk down through the passage and understand a little bit more. We know that the kingdom of Israel was divided into two sections uh, at the Civil War, for say, at 931 B.C. The northern tribes separated from the southern tribes. And this is a very important uh, time to remember and uh, an event that happened. As Isaiah is writing, he's writing a couple hundred years after this. He's writing as a minister to Judah, but also talking about northern tribes of Israel and how they are going to go into judgment, under judgment, under Assyria. I also gave you, inside your bulletins, if you look, there's a little handout of a timeline of the Bible. I think this will help you a little bit. Um, you ought to take this and staple it to your reading plan for the year that I'm going to have in the back. The reading plan for the year is, the way this is going to work is, uh, we're going to try to go chronologically through the Bible. And you'll have six chapters a week to read. That's a little more than last time, but you can handle it. I, I know you can. Uh, it'll go chapters one, uh, it, it, it'll have 
uh, four days where you'll have one chapter and then one day you'll have two chapters. And you can do it. I know you can do it. And for those that just want to follow along the chronological look of the Bible. And I've laid it out in 52 weeks. Now there's a second level for all of you that are a little bit more ambitious. You're going to dive in and read all the extra books. A lot of the extra books. Uh, like reading all of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in a week. You're like, how am I going to do that? Well, you can do it. I know you can. Do you know that if you read the whole Bible through, it would be like 30 minutes a day. It, it, it wouldn't take that long for us to get through it. And that would get you, you would be done in like 90 days if you did 30 minutes a day. It's not that much. So y'all can do this. I know you can. So there's levels one, two, and then for the real ambitious, those extra chapters and chron uh, chronicles and some other places where it repeats itself a little bit. So there's three levels here. I'll give these out afterwards. Y'all can follow along. But this chronological thing that I gave you, a little outline, this timeline, will help you to follow along in your Bible. The goal is to kind of give us the big picture of the Bible this year. So I thought it appropriate for us to go back to the Old Testament and look at a passage that gives us a picture of what the Old Testament was going on, what was happening during a specific time. This was the time before the northern tribes were taken away by the Assyrians, and Judah was still surviving. The Assyrians would come down and attack the southern tribes of Judah also, and God would give them mercy for a little bit, and then they would be taken away also. So Isaiah talks about all these things, and he prophesies the events before they happen. He talks about northern tribes being taken away, and that the southern tribes were going to be attacked also, and it was going to come right up to the edge, and then God would give mercy. And that's exactly what happens. So in our passage today, we're looking at a, a time when the northern tribes were just about to be taken away. Uzziah has died, a king of Judah, as Isaiah 6 talks about. And so this judgment is coming on the land. Look at Isaiah 8, 19, 8, 19. And you see here, you see here the setting for this judgment. When they say to you, consult the mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on the behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, they have no light. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Talking about the northern tribes and talking about their rejection of God and see what they're doing. They're literally looking into spiritists and consulting the dead. They're doing all kinds of evil practices and God's going to bring down a judgment upon them. And in this area, the northern tribes of Israel are completely in rejection of God and God is going to judge them, is what Isaiah the prophet says. The prophet Isaiah was living around these people. And God was using Isaiah to call 
them to repentance and, and warn them of the things that were going to happen. At the same time, he was warning Judah and saying, Look, Judah, your northern brothers and sisters are going away. It's getting bad. You better look to God. Focus in on Him. Ultimately, all of this, though, throughout this whole section is about the judgment of God, the judgment of God, the judgment of God that's coming. Right in the middle of all this judgment, God does something beautiful. He gives a glimpse to the future. He says, there is grace coming. There is mercy. This is good news for all of us, isn't it? In the darkness, when it's bad, when it's evil, there's still hope. And God offers and talks about a great hope to come. And he sprinkles it in throughout these chapters. It starts back in 7.14. There's this first little glimpse of glory to come and grace to come. He says in verse 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So right in the midst of the judgment, right in the midst of all the darkness, there's this little glimpse of a son who's coming, of a child that's coming, and his name will be called Emmanuel. And then he goes on and he mentions it again in chapter 8, this Emmanuel, before bringing it back up in our passage in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, bringing up the child again. Isaiah points here to a light and a great joy that comes at the arrival of the child. The child is the one Isaiah had already alluded to, as I mentioned in Isaiah 7 and then again in 8. But he would produce great joy and revelation of God in the darkest of places. So 2,700 years later, we have hope in that same promise. That promise that was made and then kept is now the promise that we have and we have hope in. We put confidence in him. He's still the hope of the world, isn't he? He's similar to, similar to the people of Isaiah's day. We have to trust in the Savior that we do not presently see. The good news is this. Even though we do not see him, he is still with us. Our eyes don't see him, but our eyes don't determine his presence. Isn't that good news? He's here. Even though we don't see him, Christ is alive. We trust him knowing he has come and he has sent his spirit and his spirit's presence reminds us of him. So this message of hope, 2,700 years later, is hope for us. And in the same way, there's hope for the world. We should share this good news. So let's work through our passage. Look, first, at the light radiates in the darkness. Verse 1, please. 9-1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. So, what's he talking about? Well, this is the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Where is this? This is the area in the northern tribes of Israel. God had treated them with contempt. 
as we'll see. But God will raise up a Messiah, and the Messiah would come in that land, in that same area. So what's he talking about? Look, verse at the beginning, it says, No more gloom for those in anguish. Again, the Assyrian king was going to attack the northern tribes of Israel. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali was going to be taken away, and there would be just remnants that would sprinkle back down into this area. The king of Assyria's army was going to slaughter the army of Israel. It was going to be a wasteland very shortly from when Isaiah speaks. Assyria had become a great evil empire again. Does anybody know the capital of Assyria? Nineveh, yeah, Nineveh. This was right a little bit after, about 40 to 50 years roughly, after Jonah had preached to Nineveh. The Assyrians had repented in Nineveh. But after 40 to 50 years later, a new generation rises up and the, and the kingdom and the empire goes south. They go evil. And in that process, they begin to do what? They go and start conquering territories. So one of the territories they conquer is Jonah's hometown, his land, his area. They come back to Zebulun and Naphtali. So Isaiah is saying, hey, they're coming, they're coming. Judgment's coming on this area. Darkness is coming. And those that had repented, their children didn't follow after them. Their children's children didn't follow after them. They went down and became the conquering force. God used this evil empire to judge the northern tribes. And there was great gloom. And there was great anguish. Gloom over the idea that There was judgment from God, and it meant oppression from its enemies, Assyria. They were merciless people. There are are reports of them taking and burying people up to their necks and leaving them out in the sand areas for them to die and for the vultures to kill them. They were at the mercy of this ruthless enemy, and God was handing them over for their wickedness. They were going to be in anguish. They would be burdened, distressed. As we see, they were going to be a people under the judgment of God. Notice it says in the second half of verse 1, He treated this area with contempt. Most likely this, He is referring to God Himself. The Lord used the Assyrians to judge the northern tribes of Israel for their rebellion. Literally, this contempt has the idea of being dishonored. Dishonor being laid upon them. Israel was abandoned by God. And he was going to judge them through Assyria. The northern captivity was coming. That was the point. Assyria would start with these northern territories of Niptali and Zebulun. These were acts of God's great judgment for their rejection. Remember, they had set up two separate temples, one in the north and one in the south, not in Judah, but in the north and south of northern Israel. And those temples were what? They literally had made calves again. Sounds just like what? Back in the Exodus. So the northern tribes did what? They rejected God. And so God handed them over and Assyria came in and wiped them out. This was a dark place to live. But in the midst of all this darkness and all this evil, God had a plan. Notice, but God. 
Yet another example of two wonderful words we see. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The least likely of locations for light becomes where God reveals his glory in the future. I love how God does this. Think about this for a second. He takes the darkest place and he shows his greatest revelation of light first. That's how God is. He's a merciful and gracious God who grants hope to the hopeless. No matter how bad it is, God gives hope. God is a gracious and merciful Savior, isn't he? He provides hope in his Son. A great light will appear. Look at verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. This passage is referring to a time in the future from when Isaiah spoke and even after the judgment had happened. In fact, it's 760 years after the fact. It's quoted in Matthew 4. Look in your Bibles over at Matthew 4. Matthew 4, it's quoted for when Jesus shows up on the scene in Galilee. In 4.12 it states, Matthew 4.12, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them a light dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Wow, isn't this cool? 760 years later, this is fulfilled. Jesus begins to proclaim the kingdom of heaven, calling for people to repent. He was the great light that came into that area. There's a very important implication for us from this prophecy. Fulfillment of Isaiah's in, in Isaiah 9. Sometimes prophetic truth is promised way way before it arrives. But the promise is still meant to be held on to in the present. Listen to me. Future hope is meant to encourage even those who won't experience the promise that day. We're supposed to know that God is in control and that God, we can be trusted based on the fact that He promises things and He keeps His promise so we can trust Him. And God showed his faithfulness here, didn't he? He was telling those people in that day, hey, I'm going to, there's going to be a great light that's going to come. There's going to be a child given. What they needed to do was trust him no matter what happened, no matter how dark it got. This is important for us today, isn't it? No matter how dark the world gets, no matter how bad it gets, we know who's in control. We know that Christ Jesus is coming back one day, don't we? We can trust him, can't we? He's a faithful God that keeps his promises. And though we might not see his return, he might not come while we're still alive. I sure hope he does. 
But if he doesn't, we can what? Trust him. We know that God is faithful. Friends, many of the characteristics of the dark world of Isaiah's day are still here in our world. But there's hope. There's hope in the light of the world. There's hope in Jesus Christ. He is the revelation of God to us. We need a glimpse of Christ. We've gotten it, and we're getting it today. Look over at John chapter 1. I think. Mark, are you preaching on this tonight? Where did you go? Yes, I thought so. Very appropriate. John chapter 1. The reason there's hope for these people in a dark place was because Jesus was coming. This is the same Jesus available to us who turn to him, repent and believe and trust in him. Look at John chapter 1 verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, verse 10, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Sin causes us to not see and know and enjoy God's glory. Living in a cursed world, in a condemned country, in a wicked community, and in sinful bodies causes the revelation of God to be eclipsed. But there's hope. The hope for the people of Isaiah's day were told to look forward to the light to come. For us, we look back to the light who has come. And to the light who will come again. Jesus. People of Jesus' day saw the light of the world. But then he left. And many of his own did not receive him. But every one of us who receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Beloved, our hope in a dark world is the same hope they had. So we say with what Paul said in 2 Timothy, remember Jesus. Remember him. We who have received him are now children of light. We are characterized by those who God has revealed himself to. He is the light for us, isn't he? And beloved, he's our hope today and tomorrow and forever. He's not just here to get us saved and then leave. He's here to be our light and a revelation of God all the time. We seek him. We all must make it our mission our goal to pursue a better understanding of this light of the world every day. We should pursue this glory even if we don't see him. Notice next, not only is there light when Emmanuel arrives, there's also joy. Look at verse 3. Joy prevailing in God's presence. Verse 3. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. 
They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for fire. There is a promise here of joy and gladness for the united and thriving nation of Israel. Look at verse 3. It states, you shall multiply the nation. That's a singular nation, the nation, most likely referring to Israel combined back with Judah. The nation. You shall multiply the nation. The fulfillment of Genesis 15 and Genesis 22 where he said to Abraham, look at the stars and see if you can count them and they'll be more numerous than you can count. There'll be so many of them. They will, this nation will be reestablished. God will fulfill these promises. The multiplication of the descendants of Abraham more than the stars of the universe. We see the glory of the Messiah's arrival is growth of the nation. Increase in joy within the nation and joy for the nation in the presence of God. Now... At this point, some of you in the room might be thinking, wait a second, Mike, are you just talking about Israel? Well, it appears that that's what he's talking about in this passage. The emphasis is Israel at this point, the nation Israel. It's important to note that this is an already not yet concept. I believe that Jesus was the Messiah and is the Messiah of Israel, and they have grown in their joy too. Many, a remnant, are in the presence of God. The gospel was for the Jew first and for the Gentile. And many Jews accepted the glory of the gospel and are now enjoying the presence of the Lord. But, as Paul talks about in Romans 11, there will be a day when all Israel will be saved. A day when Israel gets it and they look on whom the, him whom they have pierced And they repent and say, what have we done? We're seeing that as we go through Revelation. We see Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, where it's talking about the 144,000, and they are tribes that are sealed. It appears that God will fulfill a final redemption of Israel as a nation. Either way, this joy is not limited, however, to Israel. It's not just Israel. Obviously, as Isaiah 52 talks about in verses 13 to 15, that it points to countless others that will be included in this joy. And that's us. We too will enjoy this great Messiah. The last of these three phrases gives the key for the source of joy. The source of joy is not being Israel. The source of joy is what? Being in the presence of God. Knowing God. Being in His presence. Look, it says it. Joy is in the presence of God. There is joy no matter what our circumstances are in the presence of God. This was the hope that Isaiah was pointing to. This is the fulfillment of Christ's mission. 
He has brought inexpressible joy to all of us. Joy to the world, right? Satisfaction for everyone who abides in Him. And again, this is an already reality for everyone who believes we have joy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, right? But, listen closely. We still live on a sin-filled, cursed planet, don't we? It's difficult, isn't it? We have to fight for joy in Christ, don't we? Is it a struggle to rejoice in the Lord always? Yes, it's because those bodies of death you carry around. And it's because the cursed planet that you live on. It's a war, isn't it? We're waiting a final redemption, aren't we? We have to pursue joy with great pain and persistence in Christ. But one day, we will be in the presence of God. And it will be joy inexpressible. And no limits. We see in Isaiah 9 this joy, this gladness that he's illustrating. And listen, I think he's illustrating the final joy, the final redemption. Because of what he talks, look in verse 3. It's joy like the harvest. Now we can't fully understand this. Because the gardens we plant, we still go to the grocery store, don't we? We're, we're not living in a farming culture. But in a farming culture, when the fresh vegetables came in, everybody rejoiced. It was great. That was the picture. That's the picture Isaiah is using. That was the first word picture. The joy of the harvest, like the harvest. But then the second one is joy like the after a victory in battle. When an army won, the valuables of the rewards of the city were theirs to have. Soldiers were often tired and hungry and weary, so there was this great rest. They got food and clothing and even riches when they conquered a city. Not only spoils, but also deliverance from their oppressors. This is probably the main idea here in our passage. You see it. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. Now, is that only talking about sin? I don't think so. We have to be careful of spiritualizing these things. I think this is literally talking about the oppression. The oppression that the people of Israel that have faced. They faced this from Assyria. And then after that, Babylon. And then after that, the Medes and Persians. And then after that, the Greece, Greeks. And then after that, the Romans. And did you see, just recently, it's all the time, the UN is constantly saying they're condemning who? Israel. But yet they say the Palestinians are not at fault at all. Matter of fact, they say Israel's the one that's persecuting. I think this is a picture of this ongoing burden that they are carrying. But one day, God is going to deliver them, redeem them fully, completely. So, what we have here is this picture. If a prophet was looking, it would be like a prophet looking out at a mountain range where he sees two mountains back side to side. And you can't really see where one mountain stops and the other one starts. You can't tell whether this is a part of that other mountain. Well, he's looking out and he sees all these things that are going to happen. And he doesn't know the exact timing of all the events. But he's talking about the end result. 
of what's going to happen with the child. Isaiah and the people of Israel knew about the victory at Midian well. And that's the comparison that he gives. What happened in Midian? Do you remember? That's why we're going to read our Bibles all the way through this year. That's the story of Gideon, remember? Where he took the small army and defeated the foes. It's a great story. And it's this picture of the impossible victory in such a small little group of men. It's a perfect illustration of Jesus. Why? Because just one child, one son would bring great redemption and great peace for all the world. One child. This is what it's all about. The joy of victory. The joy of knowing God will bring great victory for Israel over her oppressors. It's important to note we can't just spiritualize this. Again, if we look over at Isaiah 11, I wasn't going to do it, but I'm going to do it. Look at Isaiah 11. I think you need to see this. Probably not going to get through all this, but y'all are okay with that. I've shown a record of being like this. Isaiah 11, this is so important. Look at verse 10. Okay, now let's look at all the way back at 1. Again, what do we have? We have the Messiah showing up, right? Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Who's that? That's the same one that was talked about in 9. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Who's that? That's Jesus. Everybody agrees, right? Yeah. All right, good. And then look at verse 6. And everybody agrees with this, too. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Anybody see any wolf dwelling with lambs? How about the leopard will lie down with the young goat? After it eats it, the bones, and the little boy, <laughs> the little boy will lead the young calf and the young lion. Yep, and that's not happening, is it? Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Hmm, bears don't graze. They eat. Blood. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Anybody? No, they don't do that unless they want to clean out their stomach a little bit. It's not happening. Look, folks, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. You better not let your kids play by cobra holes. Has this happened? No, this has not happened. Look, verse 10. Then in that day, the nations, plural, the nations, plural, will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the people, and his resting place will be glorious. Then in, it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Beloved, this has not happened yet. This hasn't happened yet. 
Then the jealousy of Ephraim from the northern tribes will depart, and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah. What's that mean? Northern tribes and southern tribes will what? Get along and be at peace. This has not happened yet, beloved. How's it going to happen? Emmanuel's going to show up again. Came the first time, showed who he was, then left. He's coming back. And one day he's going to bring about the full fulfillment of all this. We won't read Micah 4, but you need to put it in your notes. 4, 1 to 4. And all the peoples of the world will stream. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. What's this? We're all going to turn the people that are in the millennium kingdom. They're going to come and they're going to worship the God of Jacob and Abraham and Isaac. This hasn't happened yet, but it will. So why is this great hope possible? Why will this joy over deliverance happen? Answer, because of the person and work of the Son of God who was given. The joy is possible because the righteous king will reign in the kingdom. Why is there hope of great joy and a peace in the world? Because the righteous reign in King Jesus. Look at it, verse 6. Of nine, chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Wow. So the question is, has this happened? (laughs) Well, we sing about it, don't we? Wonderful counselor, right? We sing about it. Well, we're singing about the same person. It is the same person that came. But all of this that happens in verse 7 will not be established till when? When he returns. In these verses we see a revelation of the character of Christ, the King. What else do we do with all this? We make it not really what it is? I don't know about you, but I'm convinced that none of the administrations for America are anywhere close to walking with God. Perfectly. I'm sorry. They don't. I hope I didn't offend anybody. But it's a fact. When the government rests upon Jesus' shoulders, it's going to be a righteous reign. There's going to be no mistakes and it's all going to be right. And I can't wait till that day. How about you? Humanity cannot put together a king that brings peace. God does that. There will be no end to the increase of his government. Why? Because of his character. Look at it. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Eternal father. Prince of peace. 
Beloved, do you see? It says here, and his name will be called, and then he's given four what? Names or titles? How many names? His name, singular, will be called four different titles. Interesting. Why? Because the name is not talking about names. It's talking about who he is, his character. Who is Christ's character? Who is Jesus' character? Who is the child that was born to us, a son who will be given to us? What's his character about? The answer, he's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's the eternal father. He's the prince of peace. Now you say, well, is that a reference to the Trinity? Well, then why is there four? And second, that would be modalism. Jesus does not, the Father did not become the Son, and then the Son become the Spirit. He doesn't change into the Father. <coughs> These are titles of the character of God, of Christ. <coughs> the focus is on the one member of the Trinity, Jesus. He is the one who is the wonderful counselor. Jesus is the mighty God. Jesus is the eternal Father. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Now you say, wait, Mike, that, I'm really good with it until you get to number three. Eternal Father just throws me off. Why is Jesus called the Eternal Father? What is Abraham called? Father Abraham. It's an honor. It's a respect that he's showing. This was, he would be the honored one. And he would be eternal. Whereas all others had died, Jesus died and what? Rose from the dead, so he's eternal. That's the emphasis. He's wonderful counselor. Everybody knows that this is who he was. He speaks as like nobody else speaks. That's who Jesus is. He is the mighty God who walks on water, raises the dead. And he is ultimately the prince of peace, isn't he? He's the one who will bring peace. He brings peace in two ways. He brings peace between God and man. And we all say, praise God, right? Because we are at enmity with him, but now we have peace with God through the Prince of Peace. <coughs> but folks, listen. He also brings peace to the world. Now there is a fake peace coming before he returns. And they're always talking about peace on this earth, aren't we? But it is a fake peace. The real peace comes when the Prince of Peace returns. It's very interesting to me that one of the reasons why peace is possible through Jesus is because he governs everything. This is a very important distinction. When Jesus returns, he will govern everything. He doesn't govern everything here. Now, I know, you're like, what? Jesus is in control of everything. Yes, he is. There's two levels. There's the overarching where God is sovereign, where the Lord is sovereign in heaven and he reigns through all these things. But then there is an, a, a sovereignty on the earth where he rules and reigns specifically through the governments. Here, he will be the government. Everything will run through him. There will be, look at verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Can't wait for that. Can you? 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Wait, wait, wait. Is he on the throne of David now? I would argue no, he's not on the throne of David. That's in Jerusalem. There will be a day when that happens. Isaiah 11 is pointing to that. <coughs> and he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. A reign of peace. A reign on the throne of David. A reign on his kingdom. A reign based on the justice and righteousness of the Son of God. <coughs> when we look at a passage like this in Isaiah 9, we're tempted to look at it and say, well, it's all pointed to Jesus at his first coming. And it's all about that. But, folks, I'd argue that it only just gives a glimpse of his first coming, and then there's a whole bunch more of his second coming. So the very things that we are being told, or the people were being told back in Isaiah's day, Look 760 years ahead. In fact, it could be 2,760 years later. Trust in God. Pursue Him. Trust in Him. He's the hope of the world. How do we know this is going to happen? How do we know that peace is coming? How do we know that this future is great and glorious where we will all be in the presence of God forever and ever and enjoy Him forever? How do we know? Last phrase in verse 7. In verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Mm. Yahweh of armies will accomplish this. God will keep His promises. Peace is coming. Joy is coming. The light of the world is coming. He came. He gave us a glimpse. We believe in Him. Now we trust in Him to return and fulfill all that He's promised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, these are hard things. These are difficult for us to understand how you could have this all planned out. And how you would have your son come and save us from our sins, but yet then go away. and Be away for 2,000 plus years until you return. Father, these, this is hard, but at the same time, we know it's true. We know your word is true. And that one day, the child will be able to play by the cobra hole. We know that one day, you will unite enemies. One day, you will rule this world perfectly through Jesus Christ, the Son. Lord, he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God the eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. We worship you, God, for all that you have ordained and all that you are accomplishing in Christ. May we rejoice in him today. May we share the glory of him with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.